Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, glad you're here. My name's Steve. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, thanks for joining us. Have, open your Bibles to John chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this on the floor around you. As always, that's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible uh, that's easily easy to read, then please take this one with you when you leave because we want you to be uh, reading along with us. In fact, we have a reading plan uh, that goes along with this series. And some people would say, I've heard this this week, it doesn't exactly go along with the series, and that's true. And so if you're reading along with us, you're probably way ahead of where we are today. Uh, but there's some reading that goes along with us. And I promise by the end, we'll all be caught up together and you'll have gotten to read that. So it's important that you have a Bible that you understand and can read. This is the NIV. It's real easy to do. It's the one we preach from every week. And so take it with you if you don't have one. Uh, it's page 741, by the way, in this Bible. John chapter 4 uh, is where we're going to start. I wonder how many of you remember uh, these bracelets that were so popular um, in the late 1990s. I think we've got a picture here. Do you remember these, the WWJD bracelets? Yeah, these were, for a while in the late 90s, these things were everywhere, weren't they? It seems like every waitress that you had at a restaurant, every cashier that you had at the store, every celebrity, every sports figure was wearing a WWJD bracelet. In fact, I read just this week that during the last half of 1997, they estimate somewhere between 15 and 50 million of these bracelets were sold. And those initials, WWJD, stood for what? What would Jesus do, right? What would Jesus do? The idea behind those, behind those bracelets were, was apparently if you were in a very difficult situation, you were trying to decide uh, between two options, you would glance down at your wrist and think, oh, what would Jesus do? And then that would guide your decision uh, to the right thing, because you always do the right thing if you were going to do what Jesus do. Now, you don't you don't see those bracelets around much anymore. I'm sure you can still buy them. Uh, but the truth is, by the year 2000, we were on to Y2K and other apparently more important things than trying to figure out the behavior of the Savior of the universe. I mean, right? I mean, if only there were some way that we could know what Jesus would have done. Uh, if only there were some tool that we had that would tell us how Jesus would have acted in a certain situation. Uh, the truth is that many of us, though, many of us quickly give up on the idea of doing what Jesus did because we think, well, you know, he was God and I'm not. But scripture is clear. The apostle John writes in 1 John 2, 6, that anyone who claims to live in him, so anyone who claims to be a Christian, should live as Jesus did, or, or as one translation says, should walk as Jesus walked. And Philippians 2 reminds us that though Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In his book, Four Chair Disciple Making, Dan Spader, who's been a mentor of mine, says it this way, never less than God, Jesus chose to live his life never more than man. And Bruce Ware, who's a professor of theology at Southern Seminary, says this, uh, his deity was unexpressed so that his humanity could be fully expressed. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that when we talk about Jesus as our model for life and ministry, that's not a far-fetched idea. It means that when Paul says that we should, uh, we should have the attitude or the mindset of Christ, and when John says that we should walk as Jesus walked, we can actually do it. Because we have the same resources that Jesus had in his humanity. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit of, of God living in us. We have the freedom to approach God in prayer, just like Jesus did. And I know that before I understood this, um, I was often like, well, he was God. Of course he could do those things. Of course he, 
lived like that. Of course he made those decisions. Of course he always chose the right thing. He was God. But when I finally understood this very important idea, it completely changed the way I relate to Jesus. It completely, it made me respect him even more than I did before. I mean, if God's word is true, and by the way, I believe it is, and if Jesus really is who he said he was, then we have to believe that we can really walk as Jesus walked. We can really have the mindset of Christ. I don't believe scripture would ever command us to do something that was impossible to do. And so those, those are commands in scripture. And though we will never be sinless as Jesus was, over time we should sin less as we become more like him. And that's why we're studying his life. We want to become more like him. And so over the past few weeks, we've been following the steps of Jesus as he started his ministry. And we began, you may remember, down here where Jesus showed up. Uh, this, is, this is Israel. This is the Dead Sea down here. In case you can't see that Sea of Galilee at the top, uh, this is a place called Bethany. It's right near uh, the Jordan River. Right around here, we believe, is where Jesus showed up, about 30 years old, Scripture says, to be baptized. He was here, and he was there with a guy named John the Baptist. And... Uh, Last week, uh, and then he was, he was baptized down there. He went away to the Judean wilderness over here. He spent 40 days there where he was tempted by Satan. And then he came back, and he started to call his first disciples, again, right around here, uh, down near Bethany. Right? And so uh, we looked at, after that, he called his first disciples, and they traveled with him up to Cana. And then they came back to Jerusalem. And we saw, we've seen kind of how Jesus uh, lived this life. Now, after this, Jesus is going to travel up to Capernaum, or down to Capernaum. We call it up. We think about up and down as north and south, right? So if, we, if we're here, if we're going to go to Fort Wayne, we might go up to Fort Wayne. If we're going to go down to Bloomington, which I don't know why you would, but if you're going to go down to Bloomington, you would go down because you go south, right? Bloomington's south. It's way south. You go down to Bloomington. Right? But in Jesus' day, they talk about up and down, in, not in directional terms, not in north-south, but in elevation terms. And so when you go uh, down to Capernaum, it's because it's downhill from where you are. When you go up to Jerusalem, it's because it's up. You're going up in elevation. So we didn't really cover this last week, but at the beginning, if you've been following the reading plan, you know this, that some significant things happened while Jesus was up in Jerusalem. He clears out the temple. He goes there for the Passover, and there's all these people that are uh, selling things and, and uh, selling sacrifices for people, and he clears out the temple. And you got to think that these new disciples that just started following him are like, what the heck? Who is this guy? Like, why is he doing this? You know, it's, it's really, really a big moment. And then he meets at night uh, while he's in Jerusalem. He goes at night, in the middle of the night, and meets with one of the Pharisees, a guy named Nicodemus. We call it Nick at night. He goes to meet Nicodemus at night. And... He meets Nick at night, and uh, he tells him that, hey, if you, wanna, if you want, really want to know God, you have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. And then uh, Jesus and his disciples head out to the Judean countryside again, uh, near his cousin, John the Baptist, again over here. Um, and this is where we'll pick up the story in John 4, verse 1. And this is what we read, John 4, verse 1. Now, Jesus learned uh, that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not, in fact, uh, Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, you realize, just because we don't have kind of the areas marked on here, Judea is down here in, in the south of Israel, and, and Galilee is up, ooh, hey, Galilee's up here in the north, all right? Just so you know that, this is going to be important here in a minute. Because uh, John 4.4 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you pause right here, uh, what I want you to see is, as I said, uh, uh, 
Judea is down here, Galilee is up here, and Samaria is right here. It's not marked on the map. And so uh, you can see that really, if you were going to go from Judea to Galilee, you would have to go through Samaria. It's kind of like if you were going from here to Wisconsin and saying, I have to go through Chicago. It's, it's on the way, right? It's, it's in the middle. But understand that for a first century Jew, the thought of taking this route through Samaria uh, would have been nothing short of shocking. It would have been the most direct route for sure, but most good Jews would have gone 50 miles out of their way to go around Samaria to get up to Galilee. Now, uh, just like a savvy traveler would avoid Chicago at all costs, if you got to go to Wisconsin, a good Jew would avoid Samaria and go around. Why? Well, because the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Samaritans hated each other. In fact, we're going to see later in the text that the Jews and Samaritans had no dealings at all with one another. And that's because the Jews uh, viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and as idolaters. And if you attended... um, the Restoration of All Things Friday night at our Noblesville campus. How many of you were there? It's fantastic teaching, wasn't it? Fantastic. If you attended that, you know how the Samaritan people came about, if, at least if you were paying attention during that time. Uh, in uh, about 722 BC, uh, the north, northern part of Israel was invaded by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians came down and invaded Jerusalem. And as um, Brad Gray said on Friday night, what happened when Assyria invaded a place, they would deport all the men. So they took all the Jewish men out and scattered them among their empire. And they sent in their own men to make families with the women that were left behind. And so all of the Samaritans are kind of half Jewish culture, half Assyrian culture. Um, and so there were, there were 10 kingdoms of Israel in the north. There were two in the south. The south was often known as Judah. But when the Assyrians attacked, they came and attacked the north, and then they uh, bred with all of the Jewish women, and that's where the Samaritans came from. Uh, And so there's these half-Jews, a product, a reminder of this terrible time in Israel's history. And the racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans was intense. I mean, I wish we had something to compare it to today, but I just couldn't think of anything. But John records that Jesus said he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. And the word that John uses here is the Greek word day. Uh, We'd spell it D-E-I, kind of like the Latin word day that means God, but it's the Greek word day, and it can be translated as a necessity or an obedient response to a command. It's the same word that Jesus will later use when he tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be turned over to the authorities. It, It means that if he's being obedient, he's got to go through Samaria. He's not just acting on his own desire here. Jesus is acting in obedience to his father's will when he goes through Samaria. So let's see what happens. Verse five, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now this is significant, this location of Sychar. We see that right here uh, in Samaria. Uh, The text tells us that Jacob's well was there and it's pointing back to the Old Testament. Now, this is so cool. The, the well that this text is likely referencing is still in existence today. We've got a picture of it here. This is Jacob's well. Now, um, it currently sits in the middle of a Catholic church, as most of the holy sites in Israel do. But this is it. This is Jacob's well uh, right here. Most scholars believe at the time of Christ, and certainly before that, at the time of Jacob, this well would have been over 100 feet deep. So to get to the water, it's quite a long way down to get to the water. And that's important to this story because in his humanity... Jesus is tired. 
That's what the scripture says. He was tired and he sat down by the well. In his humanity, he's been walking all day. He's in this dry, desert-like condition. It's hot, it's dry, he's thirsty, he wants a drink, and he comes to this well, but the water is 100 feet down and he's got nothing to draw water with. And so you say, but he's Jesus. Make a bucket, make a rope, do a miracle, right? I mean, but remember, Though he was in very nature God, this is where we see his humanity fully expressed. Though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In this passage, we see his full humanity in view. So he sits down, still thirsty, and then watch what happens next in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, if the Jews wouldn't even go through Samaria, they would never consider drinking from the same container. That would be completely unclean. I'm not going to put my lips on something that your lips have been on. I'm not going to touch something a Samaritan has touched. It's dirty. Now, I wonder if you have anything that that reminds you of. I'll tell you what's going on here. This woman has given Jesus a couple of reasons to put up a wall between the two of them, okay? And so uh, this, this racial tension between the Jews and Samaritans was real. Problem number one, she's a Samaritan. Problem number two, she's a woman. Why are you talking to me? I'm a woman. But here's the brilliance of Jesus. Every time Jesus was given a chance to build a wall, he instead chose to build a bridge, Every time we see in scripture that Jesus had a chance to build a wall between himself and someone else, he always built a bridge. Why? Well, because that's what God does. If you look way back to the beginning in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God could have built a wall and kept us out of his kingdom forever. Never associated with people again, but instead he built a bridge. He said, the enemy will strike your heel, but in the end you will crush his head. He built a bridge for us. Now let's get more personal for you and for me. Scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because my sin is filthy to God. Your sin is disgusting to God. And what he could have done for me, what he could have done for you is built a wall to keep us out of his kingdom. But instead, God built a bridge in the person of Jesus who came to earth to die on our behalf and to offer a way for us to find our way back to God. And Jesus only does what he sees his father doing. So watch him build this bridge. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You, even you, the Samaritan woman, could have received living water. I will give you living water. Now, his disciples aren't around right now. They went into town to get food. But if they were, I'm sure that John would have recorded an audible gasp from the crowd when Jesus said, I would have given you living water. Living water, that's the representation of the kingdom of God. That's only for Jews in their mind. They couldn't have imagined anyone outside of Judaism, and especially not a Samaritan receiving. But what Jesus is saying so brilliantly here is this, that the gospel is for everyone and racism will not be tolerated in the kingdom of God. That's Jesus building a bridge. If you ever think the Bible just isn't relevant for today, well, I think you can see that's just not true. So he keeps building the bridge. 
Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And so here's, here's another thing that I think we see in the text, if you want to take, take notes on this. The woman saw only the physical reality. She saw only the physical reality. Jesus wanted her to see the spiritual reality. Right? It's, it's hard work fetching water. There, there are no taps, no faucets uh, to have water at the turn of a knob. She had to travel uh, who knows how far with this bucket and this rope, drop it down 100 feet in this hole in the ground, haul it up, carry it home. As Jerry said last week, water's heavy, uh, eight pounds a gallon. So we don't know how big, of a, how big of a container she may have had to have to carry that home. So the thought of never having to be thirsty again sounds pretty good. She says, give it to me, give me this living water. But Jesus is focused on the spiritual reality. She's focused on the physical reality. It's living water. And now he's going straight for the heart. And he says in verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And now it all makes sense. Right? This whole thing starts to come together. In the first century, uh, drawing water at the well would have been a community, community event. It, it would have been the social highlight of the day. It's the place where you get together and share the news, all the women of the community coming together, um, sharing the work, talking about what's going on at home, how the kids are doing in school. Hey, did you see so-and-so? They got that new donkey, sport edition with the sunroof. Right? All the donkeys had sunroofs because there's no top on Um <laughs> You don't go to the well alone. You don't go to the well alone unless you're an outcast. You know, like if you had five husbands and you're living with another guy right now, and then you'd have to come alone because you'd be marked as immoral. Even among the Samaritans, this woman was clearly marked as immoral. You'd be ostracized. Notice she begs Jesus, give me the water so I don't have to keep coming back here. She's embarrassed to come to the well. That's why she's doing it in the heat of the day. And so Jesus speaks straight to it, doesn't he? He was full of grace. We've seen that in every interaction. He's full of grace. Speaking to this woman who was marked unclean in this place that he shouldn't have even been, but he was also full of truth. He simply speaks to her sinful reality. So this lady's like, uh, uh-oh, this guy knows all about my dating life. I think it's time to change the subject. And so that's what she does in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, the Samaritans, because they were part Jewish, knew they had to worship, but because they were also part Assyrian, they decided they didn't want to go and associate with the Jews, so they built their own kind of temple, their own worship place on this mountain. And so they believed that was the true place of worship. And so she's asked this question. This is a big topic of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus replied, verse 21, Woman, I, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and then he says this, and has now come. It's 
a hint. That's foreshadowing. A time is coming and has now come where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Worship in spirit and truth, in spirit and truth. What is Jesus getting at? He's saying, you're focused on the physical. I'm trying to point you to the spiritual. You're focused on the outside and what things look like. I'm focused on what's inside. You're focused on where. I'm focused on you. He says, you're focused on the rules about worship, but I'm focused on this relationship. I want you to grow this relationship with your heavenly father. I want you to know who he really is. Worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now at this point, I just got to imagine Jesus sneaking in a little bit closer and kind of looking around to make sure that nobody's listening. And then he says this, he says, I, the one you're speaking to, I'm he. The Messiah is coming. And he says, yeah, I'm the one. And I just want you to realize, just take a, back, a step back from this whole interaction and see what Jesus has just so brilliantly done. He came to this well, tired and thirsty. And by the way, he never gets that drink. I don't know if you noticed that in the text. He never gets to take the drink he was looking for. But what he does is he uses this very real need in his life to begin a spiritual conversation with this woman. And somewhere in the middle of it all, it became less about Jesus's physical need and all about providing for this woman's spiritual need. And I think that's really important for us to see because often when we think about sharing the hope of Christ with others, if you're a Christian and you think about like sharing the gospel with somebody, sharing your story with somebody, we think about meeting a person's physical needs first so that we can then build a relationship and speak to their spiritual need. And that's something Jesus does as well. I mean, think about another story, another interaction in the life of Jesus where uh, there's a woman who's caught in adultery and she gets dragged out into the street and Jesus stands in front of her between her and her accusers so that they don't stone her to death. I mean, he meets her physical need, but then he addresses the spiritual need with her and he says, now go and sin no more. But here it is reversed. Jesus begins with his own physical need and that opens the door to providing for this woman's spiritual need. And so the question that we need to consider after reading this story is this. What do I have right now? What need do I have right now that I could leverage to, start a, to begin a spiritual conversation? What need do I have right now that I could leverage to start or begin a spiritual conversation? Because here's the thing. Uh, we, we live in America, right? We are, we are self-sufficient people. Like if, if we need a bucket and a rope, you go to Lowe's and you buy a bucket and a rope and you come back to the well. You know, in the 50s and 60s, if you needed a cup of flour to make dinner, you would go where? Next door and borrow one. But now if we need a cup of flour, we load the kids in the car and we head over to Kroger uh, or, you know, forget that. We go to Chili's, right? <laughs> because that's easier than cooking dinner. And we are self-sufficient people. But what if we became intentional about using these needs as, an, as one opportunity to begin spiritual conversations with our neighbors and our coworkers and, and finally uh, our family members who don't know Christ? I, I can tell you one small example of how this played out for me. A couple weeks ago, I got a nasty gram from our HOA um, that I was uh, out of compliance with our covenants because I had mold or algae or moss or something growing on the siding of my house. And uh, my first thought was, well, they got some nerve telling me my house is dirty. And then I walked around the house and went, well, maybe, yeah, I can, I can see it, right? 
And so then my next thought was, well, I've got a ladder. If I just go rent a pressure washer from somewhere, I could come wash this off. But then I remembered that I've got a neighbor who's had a pretty tough year. And uh, he's out of work, doesn't have a job. He's been doing odd jobs. And uh, the next morning, I happened to see him with his pressure washer out in the driveway. And I said, hey, what would you charge me to clean my house? And uh, we worked out a deal, and I was able to um, help his family, but not charity. It was like he was working, so there's some dignity there. And we were able to have one more conversation. This is a guy I've been trying to share Christ with, and, you know, it's a chance to advance the conversation. That's just one small example, right? But what is it that you have? What need do you have that you could use to start a spiritual conversation? What, what need do you have that you might be able to leverage to advance the kingdom of God? Back to the story. We'll wrap it up here. Verse 27. Then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? That's clearly what they wanted to ask or else it wouldn't be written here. Right? They come back, they find him talking with this woman. Again, just highlighting the racial tension that was felt by everyone involved. Everybody was thinking it, but nobody said it. But John clearly knew everybody was thinking it because he writes, nobody asked this question that everybody was thinking. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. Now, get this. She comes to the well in the hottest part of the day. She doesn't want to be there. She hates drawing water. Clearly, she's telling Jesus, please give me this living water so I'll never be thirsty. I don't ever want to have to come back here. But something about this interaction has struck her so hard that the water that she just worked so hard to gather is left there at the well. As she runs back into town, she all of a sudden realizes the spiritual need that's been met is a much bigger deal than the physical need of her bringing water back home, right? Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way toward him. And what you'll find as you read on is that because of the testimony of this woman, many Samaritans believe in Jesus, but there's one more lesson that Jesus wants to teach his disciples, and I think this is the lesson for you and me today. It's the lesson that I was reminded of again as I was preparing this week. Uh, verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. <laughs> like, Rabbi, you're hungry. Come on, man. You wouldn't be doing this if you weren't hungry, right? They said to him, I have food to, or he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now notice, he's, they're focused on the physical. He's pointing them to the spiritual. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. He says, I tell you, open up your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, uh, there's a lot in that phrase. That could be a whole sermon in itself. But what I want you to see is that some scholars believe that Jesus is referencing the work of his cousin, John the Baptist, who was doing all this baptizing down around Bethany. We know that John was given the task of preparing the way for the Messiah. And could it be that John's message had made its way from here up to Sychar, because the Samaritans seem to know that there's a Messiah that's coming. And remember, they're not Jewish people per se. They've got some Jewish heritage to them. But the woman mentions in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming. How did she know? Probably not reading scripture. Possibly because John and his disciples teaching and preaching and preparing the way in that area. But regardless of how they knew, they knew. Like they knew 
that the Messiah was coming, and Jesus says to his disciples in verse 35, open up your eyes, open your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. He said, someone's worked the soil, someone's planted the seeds, and now there are people all around you who are looking, who are desperate for the kingdom of God. Even his own disciples are so focused on the physical, they're missing the spiritual. Why is he talking to her? She's a Samaritan. Why doesn't he eat something? Maybe his brain's sunburned. And Jesus says to his disciples, and what I think he would say to you and me today is this, open up your eyes. Open your eyes. There are people all around you who are desperate for the love of God. Open up your eyes. When you hear that, what do you think? Is there some place in your life, some blind spot where you need to open your eyes? For some of us, it's, it's race. For some of us, it's, it's understanding that every tongue, so there's people who speak different than we do, every tribe, people who live differently than we do, every nation, people who look different than we do, is gonna be in the kingdom of God. Maybe we need to open our eyes to this reality this morning and repent of excluding or, God forbid, hating someone because they look differently than you. You know, we have won the, the life lottery by being born in the United States in a lot of ways. There are people all over the world that did not win life's lottery, but we treat them like they've done something. In a lot of cases, we treat them like they've done something to deserve their place in life. Open your eyes. You've never looked in the eye of someone that Jesus didn't go to the cross for. For some of us, we're like this woman and we're so focused on the physical, we can't see the spiritual. You know, if you call yourself a Christian and you're still thirsty, there's a good chance you're drinking from the wrong well. Jesus says, I've got this living water. Paul says, fix your eyes, not on what is seen because what is seen is temporary, but focus your eyes. Fix your eyes on what is unseen because that's eternal. Stop focusing on the temporary. I have a a friend who says, life is nothing more than the pop quiz for eternity. Open your eyes to what's eternal. For some of us, we're like the disciples in this story. And what Jesus is wanting us to see that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That the problem isn't the harvest. The problem isn't that, well, nobody wants to come to Christ today. Nobody wants to come to church with me. Uh, Nobody wants to hear my story. The problem is the lack of kingdom workers. Open your eyes. Scripture says later, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers. But for all of us, my hope and prayer today, this week, is that we would open our eyes to see Jesus in a new way. To, to see how he lives, just study how he lives, pay attention to what he says. There's so much we can gain if we just think about Jesus more. He's a deep, deep well if we just open our eyes. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this story, for this interaction, for the, just the number of lessons it teaches us from looking at the life of Jesus and how he interacts with people who are so different from him. Lord, I pray that we would take away exactly what you'd have us take away from this, that no matter where we are on that spectrum, no matter where we see ourselves, wherever we need to open our eyes, Lord, would you open our eyes and help us to see um, the kind of person that you are, uh, the kind of God that you are. Lord, help us to learn from you. Help us to follow you in a new way. Help us to see uh, the depth of your love and your grace for the entire world. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.